salvation. So Colossians 1, 12 through 14 here in just a moment, being thankful for our salvation. I want to share something, though, that the Colson Center uh, shared first. Last week... Um, we wrapped up our sermon series on having a biblical worldview. And over several weeks, I encouraged you, I exhorted you to test everything. To test everything. Every form of media, everything. Test the worldview and make sure that you are holding true to a biblical Judeo-Christian worldview. And we're going to weave that into sermons coming up. But one thing I just feel convicted to talk about, just for a moment, just for a moment is lies. Uh, about a month or so ago, I read an article, which was a chapter of a book about Christians in the age of conspiracy theories. Talked about why are Christians drawn to these things? And I read two other articles to the Gospel Coalition and a few others. You know, one even conspired, con compared conspiracy theories to bearing false witness against your neighbor. You know, the Apostle Paul encouraged us not to follow old wives' tales, you know. Christians have to be different than the world. We have to be above the world. We have to be people of the truth. Strong researchers that don't share anything. We don't know it's true. And on an, in an age of Facebook or forwarded emails before that, I have family members who aren't on Facebook, but they're certainly on email, on email, and they forward to me junk stuff that just isn't true. A five-minute uh, research project can prove that. Well, there's a guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Many of you might know of him. He died, and he's with the Lord now. He came out of Soviet Russia, and he was very, very Soviet, very communist, until he was thrown in the gulag. That would change things for you, wouldn't it, going in the gulag? He came out, and he wrote a, a work called the Gulag Archipelago, or something like that. And the Soviets allowed it to be published because it was against Stalin, and they were moving away from Stalin and into Khrushchev at that point. Well, later on, he wrote several other works until eventually the Soviets kicked him out. And he was exiled to the United States. And he wrote an article. This comes from the Colson Center now. Um, in his final essay to the Russian people before his exile from his home nation, Alexander Solzhenitsyn offered a way forward. The essay is titled, Live Not By Lies. Live Not By Lies. And I'm indebted, the John Stone Street of the Colson Center says, I'm indebted to my friend Rod Dreer for pointing me to this essay in his new book by the same title. Rod Dreer has a book titled Live Not By Lies. According to Solzhenitsyn, we must at the very least commit ourselves to personal non-participation in lies. Though lies may conceal everything, though lies may control everything, we should be obstinate about this one small point. Let them be in control Lies, being controlled, but without any help from any of us. We are not to aid lies. It is the easiest thing for us to do and the most destructive for the lies. Because when people renounce lies, it cuts short their existence. When people renounce lies, it cuts short their existence. I'm just going to read a paragraph and then we're going to move on. Even if Solzhenitsyn uh, continued... Even if, Solzhenitsyn continued, we do not march into the squares and shout the truth out loud, let us refuse to say what we do not think. Let us, let us each make a choice, whether to remain consciously a servant of falsehood or to shrug off the lies and become an honest man, worthy respect from one's children and contemporaries. Such a person, Solzhenitsyn wrote, such a person who lives not by lies is this. 
will not sign, write, or print in any way a single phrase which in his opinion distorts the truth. If we are people of the truth, people who live not by lies, that means we will not sign, write, or print in any way a single phrase which in his opinion distorts the truth. If we are, if we are a people who lives not by lies... We, we will not utter such a phrase, neither in private conversation nor in public, neither on his own behalf nor at the prompting of someone else, neither in the role of agitator, teacher, educator, nor as an actor. We stand for truth. If we are a person who lives not by lies, we will not depict, foster, or broadcast a single idea in which he, cannot, in which he can see a distortion of the truth. If we can see a distortion of the truth, we do not depict, foster, or broadcast that idea. Whether, by, whether it be in painting, sculpture, photography, technical science, or music, we do not give credit to something that distorts the truth. If we stand for truth and we do not distort lies, I'm sorry, if we stand for truth and we live not by lies, that means we will not cite out of context either orally or in writing, a single quotation to please someone, to feather his own nest, to achieve success in his work, if he does not completely share the idea which is quoted, or if it does not accurately reflect the matter at issue. If it is not accurate, we don't cite it. We do not cite things out of context. We do not propagate lies. If we live not by lies, that means we will not allow himself, that's us, to be compelled to attend demonstrations and meetings if they are contrary to our desire. If we live not by lies, that means we will immediately walk out of a meeting, session, lecture, performance, or film if he hears a speaker tell lies. If we hear lies, we don't, we don't go along with that. We will not subscribe to or buy a newspaper or magazine in which information is distorted and primary facts are concealed. Now, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote that before being exiled from Soviet Union in the 1960s. Imagine today, in the age of social media and email and all this other stuff, my concern is too many Christians are just as complicit, sharing things that we, maybe we like what it says, but we really haven't done research. We don't know if it's true, and we share it. We have got to be people of the truth. Christians have always been known as people who look to the word of God, who, who, who want to learn things, who study things, who do not take things at face value, who do not follow vain myths and things like that. The Apostle Paul was countering those vain myths in Colossians and many other works of the New Testament. He was, he was countering the myths that became later on Gnostic, Gnosticism. We as people should live not by lies. I wanted to share that before getting into this uh, message today. Do you realize, though, uh, moving on to talking about salvation and rejoicing in our salvation, as Christians, we have salvation in Jesus Christ. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ. But we also have a fuller life, a complete life in Jesus Christ. There's a book by Dale Carnegie, um, and it's titled, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. I, for one, worry too much. And so a few weeks ago, I heard about this book, and I zoomed my way through it. And at the end of the book, he gives testimonies of people who dealt with worry and conquered it. One of those was E. Stanley Jones. Any of you heard of E. Stanley Jones? E. Stanley Jones was a very influential missionary to India. 
a very influential missionary to India. Now listen as I share for a moment about E. Stanley Jones. One of America's most dynamic speakers and the most famous missionary of his generation was E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones says, I have devoted 40 years of my life to missionary work in India. These are E. Stanley Jones' words. He says, at first I found it difficult to endure the terrible heat plus the nervous strain of the great task that stretched before me. At the end of eight years, I was suffering so severely from brain fatigue and nervous exhaustion that I collapsed not once but several times. I was ordered to take a year's furlough in, in America. On the, on the boat returning to America, I collapsed again while speaking at a Sunday morning service on the ship. And the ship's doctor put me to bed for the remainder of the trip. After a year's rest in America, I started back to India, but stopped on the way to hold evangelistic meetings among the university students in Manila. In the midst of the strain of these meetings, I collapsed several times. Physicians warned me that if I returned to India, I would die. In spite of their warnings, I continued on to India, but I went with a deepening cloud upon me. When I arrived in Bombay, I was so broken that I went straight to the hills and rested for several months. Then I returned to the plains to continue my work. It was no use. I collapsed and was forced to return to the hills for another long rest. Get this. Here is a guy who we quote all the time. I did a paper on him at Asbury Theological Seminary. A missionary, and he keeps on collapsing, and he's constantly dealing with the strain. And, and, and it's like, how is he going to make it 40 years? Again, I descended to the plains, and again, I was shocked and crushed to discover that I couldn't take it. I was exhausted mentally, nervously, and physically. I was completely at the end of my resources. I feared that I would be a physical wreck for the balance of my life. If I didn't get help from somewhere, I realized that I would have to give up my missionary career, go back to America, and work on a farm to try to regain my health. It was one of my darkest hours. At that time, I was holding a series of meetings in Lucknow. While praying one night, now listen to this. While praying one night, an event happened that completely transformed my life. While in prayer, and I was not particularly thinking about myself at the time, a voice seemed to say, Are you yourself ready for this work to which I have called you? He's praying. He's dealing with all this physical strain, all this exhaustion. And now he hears his voice, the Holy Spirit. Are you yourself ready for the work to which I've called you? He says, I replied, no, Lord, I am done for. I have reached the end of my resources. The voice replied, if you will turn that over to me and not worry about it, I will take care of it. The Holy Spirit, turn those worries, turn those fears over to me, the Holy Spirit says. I will take care of it. He says, I quickly answered, Lord, I close the bargain right here. There it is. A great peace settled into my heart and pervaded my whole being. I knew it was done. Life, abundant life, had taken possession of me. I was so lifted up that I scarcely touched the road as I quietly walked home that night. Every inch was holy ground. For days after that, I hardly knew I had a body. 
I went through the days working all day and far into the night and came down to bedtime wondering why in the world I should ever go to bed at all. For there was not the slightest trace of tiredness of any kind. I seemed possessed by life and peace and rest by Christ himself. How powerful that is. When we trust in Jesus for eternal life, we are, all, we are also trusting in Jesus for the fuller life now, the complete life now, abundant life now. And I want to ask all of you and all those listening, watching on TV or whatever, do you rejoice in your salvation? We go to Thanksgiving this Thursday. Are you thankful for your salvation in Jesus? How do you respond to the devil's attacks? I got this illustration from John MacArthur, and if John MacArthur can share it in church, so can I. Martin Luther said the devil came to him every night to dispute with him. Martin Luther said he learned two things would chase the devil away. Two things would chase the devil away. One... One way was to say, Satan, I am baptized. I have left your wilderness. You have no more jurisdiction. So the first thing to chase the devil away was to cling to our salvation in Jesus Christ. The other way that Martin Luther knew would chase the devil away, the other way, and I'm not sure how else to say this, was to pass gas. Martin Luther believed that because the devil was proud and hated mockery, passing gas at his face was a way of mocking him and making Satan flee. I kid you not. I found that humorous, but the first part is important for us today. Baptism follows salvation. And to Martin Luther, he was clinging to his salvation. When the devil attacked him, he clung to his salvation, and so should we. Baptism sealed the deal for Luther. Baptism tangibly represents the intangible. Are we thankful for our salvation? Where would you be without Jesus? What would your life be like without Jesus? Does your salvation give you hope for eternity? What do you think about at funerals? Does, does your salvation give you hope when you think about death? Death is a non-factor for the Christian, not eternally speaking. At least. Does your salvation give you answers? We have hope. We always have hope. I have a blank card up here. Sometimes I'll write them as thank you cards or, or other things. Usually I keep thank you cards in my desk. Uh, maybe some of you write thank you cards as well. Do you give God thanks for your salvation? What are you thankful for? Food? Clothing, shelter, children, family, friends, work, retirement, money, our country, our freedoms. When you thank God, uh, do you thank Him for your salvation? A number of years ago, I was speaking at Men's Challenge, which was a group that Alliance started, and it, it spread to the Maslin and Canton area, and I would lead a devotion once a month, and it helped men learn job readiness skill, but they also shared the gospel. And as I spoke to them, the Holy Spirit compelled me to say, the church needs to apologize. 
I was talking about the gospel. And the church needs to apologize. Because if we really believed the gospel, we would be sharing it with others. We would be so thankful to God about the gospel that we just couldn't contain it. We would just have to talk about it. But instead, we've made many, 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 many other things more important than the gospel. And in doing that, we have lost many people. Are you thankful for your salvation? We're excited about something. We just share it. It can be the best hole-in-the-wall restaurant somewhere down a gravel road. But if, but if, but if their food is really great, they're going to be on diners, drive-ins, and dives on Food Network. And everybody's going to be going to them. How much does the gospel mean to us? How much does salvation in Jesus mean to us? Today I want to look at Colossians 1, 12 through 14. And I want to talk about thankfulness for your salvation, for God's salvation. Let's read it. I'm picking up mid-sentence here, verse 12. Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want to read that again. Mid-sentence, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father. Our thanks are going to God the Father. And what has he done? Who has qualified us. God qualified us. You did not qualify yourself. I did not qualify myself. God qualified us, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We have this share in inheritance in heaven, and that is awesome. For, verse 13, he rescued us. From the domain of darkness, we are rescued. We are rescued from the dark world, from the devil's world. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were dead. The power was out spiritually. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of Jesus, his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Does that mean anything to you? And we see right here God's great rescue mission. Verse 12 starts mid-sentence. Paul is in the middle of one long sentence here. Actually, verses 9 through 20 are one long sentence in the Greek. 218 words in one sentence. The Apostle Paul, the master of long sentences. And this is a prayer that Paul is praying. And many times we see the Apostle Paul mix theology and prayer together. And we look at him and we think, is he preaching, writing, or praying? Yes, he's doing all three. Uh, John Piper has this great series on YouTube. You could watch him called Look at the Book. He'll take a verse and he'll talk for 10 minutes, just take it apart. And right now he's going through Ephesians. And he was talking just yesterday in his video about how we see this in the Apostle Paul. His prayers and his theology teaching are interwoven together. And that's what he's doing right here. This is theology in prayer. These three verses are about giving thanks to God for our salvation. The 2011 NIV update, the New International Version, says joyful thanks. We're giving joyful thanks for our salvation. God has qualified you to share in the inheritance. That's what this says. 
Who qualified you? God did. Only Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says that we are saved by grace. Our salvation is by the grace of God. We give thanks for gifts, and our salvation is a free gift. We don't give thanks to what we earn. I mean, we might, but we don't have to, right? Uh, Steve's over here. He owns a pool store. He employs people. If Steve has his workers, and his workers, uh, at the end of the week, they worked 40 hours, and he, and he goes to give them their paycheck, okay? Their paycheck is for 40 hours of labor, and he gives them their paycheck. If they get on their hands and knees and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Master Steve. Thank you so much. We thank you so much for this, for this gift of a paycheck. We thank you. He would probably think, wow, this is a good employee, you know? Because you don't usually have to give thanks for a paycheck. You earned your paycheck. We did not earn our salvation. We could not earn our salvation. Jesus went to the cross for our salvation. He was crucified for us. It's a totally and completely free gift. And we have an inheritance in Christ. We are considered sons and daughters of God. We are family with God. We have an inheritance in heaven. We are part of the light, the light as opposed to darkness, which was a common contrast which Paul would use. Our salvation was God's great rescue mission. Verse 13 says that God rescued us from the domain of darkness. Think about a rescue. When I think about rescue, I always think of the movie The Patriot. And I would love to play the clip for you, but streaming live makes it difficult. In the movie The Patriot, Mel Gibson's character plays the Swamp Fox, which was a real guy, actually, during our Revolutionary War period. And some of the Swamp Fox's militiamen were captured by the British. And they're in this makeshift British prison, and they're waiting to be hung if, uh, if the Swamp Fox doesn't surrender himself. So there's a priest, a pastor in there with them, and the pastor actually is, uh, is, is, is part of the militia. And the pastor is praying with them. And as he's praying, he says, And we pray in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost. And as he prays Holy Ghost, he sees the swamp fox, his commander, ride in with the white flag. And there's some punniness there because they called the swamp fox a ghost because of his tactics at hiding and taking people out. And uh, he goes in and he sees Lord Cornwallis. And he says, I'm here for a prisoner exchange. And Cornwallis has prisoner exchange, and Mel Gibson's character says, yes, I have uh, 18, I think it is, of your men. He says, what? You don't have 18 of my men. He says, look, up there on the hill. Well, they did some trickery, and they made it look like they had 18 British prisoners on the hill. They weren't. They were just uh, um, stuffed dummies in redcoats, you know. And anyways, he rescued his men. The swamp fox rescued his men through this way. And in such way, God rescued us from the domain of darkness. God rescued us from sin. Jesus rescued us by dying on the cross and rising again. And we are simply rescued from darkness and left wandering. No, we are transferred to the kingdom of Jesus. Verse 14 says that he redeemed us. And this means that he bought us just like you buy a slave. Verse 14 says that we are also forgiven. We are forgiven. Are you thankful for your salvation? John MacArthur shares the following. He says, way back in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 16.23 and Psalm 96.2 says this, Proclaim the good tidings 
of his salvation day to day. Proclaim the good tidings of God's salvation day to day. Way back in First Chronicles, way back in the Psalms, people were proclaiming on a daily basis the good news of the salvation of God. That has always been the greatest preoccupation of the people of God, to praise him for salvation. Revelation 7 says, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's heaven. All the beings in heaven are praising God and the Lamb for salvation. So we can say, it is a a theme of the Holy Spirit's revelation. The theme of the Holy Spirit's revelation is salvation. MacArthur says, I will simplify simplify the Bible for you. The main theme in the Bible is salvation. That's the theme of the Bible. It goes from corruption to salvation, from fall to eternal glory. The theme of the Bible is salvation. And so it is a theme of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Everything that the prophets in the Old Testament knew about salvation was given to them by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. The Holy Spirit was revealing the sufferings of Christ in Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13. The Holy Spirit was revealing all of this, the sufferings, death, trial, beating, crucifixion, and the glories to follow. The Holy Spirit revealed truth about the resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement. The resurrection obviously implied everywhere that the Messiah is seen reigning because if he dies, he has to rise to reign. The resurrection is revealed by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 69. The resurrection, exaltation of Christ is revealed in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, the end of the chapter. Also Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Zechariah 2, and Zechariah 14. They were prophesying about his suffering and about his glory because that was the message of the Holy Spirit. Those two things were the theme of Old Testament prophecy. Isn't that powerful? All these prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation, the Holy Spirit is revealing the gospel, is revealing salvation. And we see way back in the Old Testament, Proclaim the good tidings of his salvation day to day. Are we thankful for our salvation? Chuck Spindall tells the true story from World War II. The Americans had advanced into German territory. Germans and Americans are shooting at each other. A German family is hiding in a barn. Then a three-year-old girl breaks free from her parents, and runs out right into the middle of the firing. Imagine that. When the Germans and the Americans both saw this, they stopped firing. They allowed the parents to rescue the child, and then they started firing again. In our salvation, we have peace with God. We are rescued from the kingdom of darkness. We are saved, forever saved. I encourage you this week to go home and write a thankful prayer to God. Take a thank you card, write it to God, stuff it in your Bible. If you have a prayer journal, write it there. Write a prayer of thanks to the Lord for your salvation. And 
Look at Psalm 51.12. In Psalm 51.12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When we have that joy, we are thankful for God's salvation. And we don't keep it to ourselves. We share it with others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for salvation. The salvation you freely offer. The salvation you freely give us. And Lord God, if there's anyone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day for them to confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior. To believe in you as the one and only Savior. To trust in you and commit to you. May today be the day of salvation. Lord God, may today be the day to firmly make the decision to be with you in order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say, and to arrange our affairs around you. If anyone needs to rededicate their life to you, recommit their life to you, may today be the day. Did they say, today, Lord, I ask forgiveness for my past sins. I've strayed from you. Help me to follow you, Jesus. Help me to follow you. For all of us, Lord, help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. When you leave, if you could remember to throw away your communion cup, that would just be an awesome help. There's trash in the narthex. As always, I want to say, if you have questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. I invite the praise team for the closing song and prayer. Amen.